Welcome back. This is the second hour of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, talking to folks with uh, the outside-the-box views, uh, people who are not likely to resonate with the kind of stuff we're seeing in the corporate world, mainstream media. It, it never ends. The uh, hysteria, the lies, the deceptions, the outrageous insults to our intelligence. So you need to read something somewhere uh, from outside that box if you want to understand what's really going on. And if you want to enjoy yourself sometimes while you read, maybe you should read some fiction. And a good piece of call it political fiction, I guess, uh, I just read is Rafiq's or Robert Sean Lewis's new novel, Atan the Revolutionary. It uh, develops his thought, which he's um, already expressed in several books. We've had him on the show before. And it's a great read. So, hey, let's talk about it. Hey, welcome, uh, Rafiq, a.k.a. Robert. How are you doing? Hi, Kevin. Good to talk to you. Yeah, you too. So are are you officially Robert now or Rafiq for the purposes of this interview? Well, you know, you know me as Rafiq, and and I, I actually use that name here in Mexico. But when I came back from India back in the day, I never asked anybody to call me Rafiq. And uh, and then I didn't publish under the name Robert Lewis because there's another Robert Lewis that published a whole bunch of books in Christian theology, which my first book ended up getting subsumed under uh, his work. So I, I published as Rafiq my memoir. But then this novel, I don't know, my father died uh, the day I finished uh, the draft that I sent to my publisher, the one we edited for a year. And I dedicated the book to him and I just thought I should use the name that he gave me. So that was that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the uh, the new novel, Asan the Revolutionary, is officially attributed to Robert Sean Lewis and not to Rafiq. But we all know it's the same guy. Uh, so hey, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed this read. It's it's a uh, quite the journey through space and time, and it's kind of you know it has this interesting dreamlike quality uh, that I, I really enjoyed. You know some of the, some of the scenes are a bit surreal. Uh, there's a, a kind of a, a spiritual otherworldly dimension. What we Muslims call the alam of life uh, keeps intruding into the regular world. It's a hidden world. Intruding into the regular world. And, and so the, whole, the overall narrative. Uh, is has that that kind of you know, dreamlike reflection of of the kind of yeah I, I'm glad you uh, you mentioned that um, I don't know if our connection's great you're you're cutting in and out so I'll, I'll hope yeah, we're okay are you driving or something I'm in Mexico and there's a car passing they're selling something so they'll be gone in a second <laughs> I see okay. Uh, All right. Sorry, brother. Yeah, to answer your question. Um, no problema, muchacho, hermano. <laughs> see, yeah, no, I, I like that you mentioned that, you know, when I was living with the Sufis, they would start drumming. We'd be sitting outside uh, shrines, uh, you know, for a week at a time. And at three o'clock in the morning, they would start drumming. And of course, I didn't understand what was going on. I just wasn't getting any sleep. But I, I asked somebody finally could explain it to me that this was the hour at which the veil between the worlds was thinnest. And so the Sufis were doing their rituals at that hour. And so as I as I began the novel, I was thinking about this tension that I wanted between our material world that we're told in the West is all there is. And the inspirited dimension that's underlying that. 
And it seemed to me that if I could bring the parable element or the fable element, the old man comes to the classroom and tells his story to the children, that I would be able to introduce uh, elements of, of, you know, the, the mystical and, and mythical. And there I, therefore, after having established that, I would be able to uh, draw those elements into the material, more material world of the story as we leave the Arctic. And, and, uh, and of course, having the crow reappear throughout was one of the ways that I was able to do that. Right. Yeah, I, I, I thought the beginning worked really well. Uh, I, it, you know, grabbed my attention right away. And your depiction of the, the scenes in the Arctic when, you know, around the birth of the hero with the, uh, the Inuit shaman uh, kind of intruding on the more ordinary reality of the school teacher, the Western school teacher, who's been sent up there to commit cultural genocide against the Inuit. Although they, she doesn't realize that. But, but that, that whole beginning uh, scene in, in the north uh, really, really worked well and uh, came across as as totally, you know, authentic. You know, it, it, it felt totally real. Have, have you actually spent time in those Inuit communities? I mean, I know you dealt with Inuit people in uh, in cities in Canada. Have you, have you been up here yeah. to those kind of places? Yeah, no, I did make a documentary about two homeless Inuit uh, living on the streets of Montreal. Um, right. It's on YouTube. It's called Be Smile. And uh, that was my way of sort of redressing um, the role that my parents had played in the, uh, the, you know, the acculturation and cultural genocide of the Inuit people, because they went up there in the 60s to teach school. And at that time, my, they had two, my two oldest brothers were, were both born already. One was a toddler, but my oldest brother uh, started school in the Arctic and attended school uh, in the Arctic for you know, a handful of years. And um, those letters that I quote in the uh, in the opening chapters uh, that the mother writes, the teacher writes home to uh, her parents, those are actually taken from letters that my mother wrote and uh, to her parents. And so I spoke to my mother. I, I interviewed my father. I interviewed my oldest brother about his experiences, uh, li- you know, living in the Arctic and going to school. And then while, while I was growing up, see, I only lived in the Arctic until I was a year old. Um, so I have no personal memories, but growing up, whenever we talked about the Inuit in class, my mom would bring in all the slides from, from the North and we had sculptures in our house and clothing. And so being a child, I didn't know any different. I just, this was my culture. This is part of my family's culture. And, uh, I always felt some kind of connection to it. And then when I was 18, I went to work in the Rocky mountains and I ended up working in, in an art gallery that was selling Inuit art. And frankly, ripping off the artist, selling the, the art for oh, vastly more than the artists were getting. And I learned a couple of things during that summer. I learned that rich people would they wouldn't pay for something unless it had the highest price tag in the store. Some of them, and that we were catering to that. And I realized that I just didn't want to be part of the racket. So eventually, I didn't go back to that job. <laughs> well, <laughs> so yeah, you, you actually you do have a background. Uh, in in the you know, Inuit worlds uh, in a certain sense, uh, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. Well, that, that there was that there's that ring of authenticity in that uh, that opening part, which is is really cool, and and then that you know it opens with with that tension between the uh, you know the, the more worldly perspective of the uh, the Western modern people and and then the traditional Inuit uh, with this view of the the intrusion of the other world into this world and their inseparability. Uh, which uh, is is really nice. And, you know, actually, it occurs to me that the 
um, you know, the, the, the idealist philosophy uh, would tell us that, in fact, you know, if, if indeed reality is, is basically meaning and that the you know, physical world and space-time are kind of secondary emanations of this more basic reality of ideas and meaning, that maybe the Inuit are actually right, and that that perspective that sounds so crazy when they have these almost seemingly childlike stories, fables, myths uh, about what's really going on and, and the material space-time world around us that we scientific types sort of are always measuring and reducing to quantity, uh, it's, it's, you know, that's what we take as reality, and we think these people are, are sort of childlike, immature, and so on. But you know, they actually might have it right, and you know, we could be uh, trapped in a sort of a lower-grade illusion it's, I, I assume you're kind of on board with that take. Yeah, and, and we see this again and again, right? When we see uh, quantum physics proving, you know, what Hinduism had always said. And I recall uh, editing a, a, a book about Inuit language, and some of their words for stars showed that they had a, a better understanding of what a star actually was. There was, you know, there was an aspect of pulsing and, and some element of a release of something that they already understood was going on. Uh, I recall another account that there were, there were Inuit and other, you know, indigenous elders across the Arctic were reporting that there was something had changed in, in the alignment of, of stars that didn't make sense. And so everybody dismissed what they said but they just had such a vast, a vastly longer record of, of observation that they were able to, to, you know, to say what they saw. But it was dismissed because the scientists didn't have an explanation for it. And then years later, we realized that because of, of you know, environmental changes and changes to the climate and so on, that what they were seeing was actually an optical illusion, uh, you know, because of air pressure changes and things like that. And they were right. So we always want to dismiss them until the science can catch up. Right, right. Uh, and uh, let's see, whoops, where was I going? Oh, yeah, the the um, religious uh, take in the story is interesting in that the the protagonist uh, who's you know, born sort of in these circumstances with a kind of a, a special connection to the spirit of an Inuit shaman uh, ends up being dissatisfied by the you know, Western Christianity, uh, goes through a religious phase, goes to some churches, and ultimately it's it's all it's it's not not working for him. Uh, and of course that you know takes us back to your book Gage and your discussion of uh, the well there's there's a whole religious philosophical uh, aspect to this, but. Uh, I take it you would agree that the political problems uh, and, and horrors that you deal with in these books, with 9-11 playing a big role, of course, but that just kind of standing for the uh, you know, psychopathic uh, culture of greed uh, that's ruling the planet at this time, and that that is related to the dominant religious paradigm or, or lack of one, that is that something has really gone wrong with the, uh, the spirituality of the West. And that, that's a major theme of the book. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I think so often we, we recognize that we don't treat uh, the roots of problems. 
You know, we don't treat the causes, we treat the effects, we put band-aids on things. We, we just keep repeating the same history over and over again. And I, I reached a, a point in my own, you know, intellectual and spiritual journey and my activism and my desire to address what I was seeing. And I thought until we address the real underlying reality is that that when we, you know, when we declared the Enlightenment and said that henceforth all would be based on, you know, scientifically replicable experiments, uh, we threw the baby out with the bathwater. There was a lot of uh, there was a lot of intuitive uh, wisdom and knowledge that we lost, and and I associate all of that intuitive knowledge with spirit, which is half of our nature, which is ours to draw upon as we wish, and um, so. I think that's that's the root cause, and that's why we have the world that we have. Uh, we we couldn't have any other kind of a world. In fact, I wrote an article recently uh, called "The Enlightenment That Wasn't" or "Why Gaza," and I talk about the fact that there's some debate over the meaning of uh, the Ten Commandments. The other interpretation or translation is that it's the Ten Commitments, and that what God was saying is. When you know me, when you know you are a spirit, when you know your true nature, I promise you won't kill. You won't steal. You won't cover it. You won't be greedy. And because we've denied spirit, we do all of those things. And so just to back up a bit about the connection between the Inuit and the, and the, the Western in the novel, the old shaman, you know, for the Inuit, the spirit have three souls. And one is the name. One is what we call the soul that goes to live with the ancestors after you die. And the other is the breath, which dies with the body. But the name is one of the souls. And the Inuit believe that it, it imparts a, a, you know, a resonance to the, the person, especially the newborn that takes on the name. And so this old shaman, he wants to return in the body of a white man as though the white man is his Trojan horse, because he had so much conflict with the church and the police and saw the decimation of his people. And so he saddles a tan with this, uh, this task but a tan grows up in a Christian household. And so he arrives at the end of his teens, the beginning of university, at the same place that we did in the Western world. He throws the baby out with the bathwater. He decides, oh, forget Christianity, forget God. I'm an existentialist. I'm just going to carry my misery with me. And, you know, and, and then we see what happens to him. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, right, right. But he still has that connection, though, uh, by way of the, you know, the spirit of, of the shaman. Uh, who, can't, who, literally, who literally saves him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think more than once, actually, right? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. I would say I would say at least twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, it's... Uh, well, one of my, my reactions to this, based kind of on, you know, I, I could relate to this book, uh, you know, in a, a whole number of ways, of course, sort of the, the central role of 9-11... Uh, you know, turning the main character into a sort of a, a cultural activist and, and lightning rod. Uh, and I could, I could also relate to the kind of religious searching uh, to his rejection of Christianity, which was very much also my reaction to the Christianity that you know, was around me when I was growing up. Uh, and, and one of the problems in the secular American culture that I quickly discovered was that there wasn't any kind of communally grounded spirituality. Like, you know, there was no place where people get together and uh, share uh, some kind of, of experience of, of the transcendent. Uh, and that, that problem, uh, it, you know, it seems to me is, uh, it's a lot 
less of a problem here in Morocco where I live now. You know, I just today is Friday. I just you know went to the midday prayer the today, and the mosque was full, it was overflowing. Even though there was such a huge wind going on that you couldn't really pray outside, so you had to cram everybody in there. And that contrasts pretty sharply with the cathedral and the monastery that I recently visited in Tarragona, Spain. Tarragona being kind of the spot for the Reconquista of the Iberian Peninsula by the Christians over the Muslims really took off. And the cathedral and the monastery that I visited in Tarragona are like totally empty. They're not being used as religious buildings. The monastery isn't at all. And the cathedral is this huge, gorgeous building where I guess they might still have a mass that attracts like a dozen people or something on Sundays. And the rest of the time, it's just the tourists coming through. And uh, so it, there's, there's a huge difference there. And, and I mean, your, your, uh, your you know, main character definitely uh, rejects the lack of any kind of sort of culture based on shared spiritual experience in the West. Uh, and then the question is, does he ever actually find it, like in India? Yeah, well, a couple of things come to mind in, in what you were mentioning there was, you know, we gather that way. We, we have these transcendent spiritual experiences in the West through through music, largely. And so I think Atan wanted to replicate that experience when he created the, the Turn Your Back concert in Washington, D.C. But when he goes to India, he realizes that, you know, when he's with the Sufis, nobody's performing. They're all performing together. And and uh, it's such a different perception of, of what an artist is in, in our culture. I used to wonder why in Native cultures, everybody could be a Native artist and why in the West, only certain people were you know, allowed to be artists. And it was explained to me that everybody has, uh, in the native culture, it's recognized that everyone has an equal connection to spirit and that art is drawn from spirit. And so everybody is allowed to be an artist. And uh, so I think that Tan, really his spiritual experience is largely through his music. And then as he goes on to reject the other uh, religious you know, groupings he comes across, um, he immerses himself in nature finally, and I feel that uh, he returns to an indigenous way of being in the world, ultimately, which is uh, free of an institutionalization of that which really ultimately can't be named. You know, the great mysterious scene, as uh, Four Arrows would, would describe it. Right. Well, a thing I really liked about this story is it it gives us a kind of a what if, which is that the protagonist becomes kind of a a nine eleven truth rock star, and you know back back in the heyday of the nine eleven truth movement when you and I were uh, causing trouble for the powers that be back you know two thousand six through I don't know I think when Obama came in in two thousand eight nine it kind of it kind of messed with things because yeah. we went back to sleep, but in that brief period there where people were really waking up around 9-11, there was a whole lot of cultural activity around 9-11, you know, not just loose change suddenly, you know, getting 100 million views almost overnight, uh, but also there were all sorts of bands doing 9-11 truth music. I used to have CDs after CDs that I would be handing out of all of these 9-11 truth songs. None of them really took off 
in a huge way. We never really had a, you know, a 9-11 truth rock star who suddenly gets huge numbers of young people flocking to 9-11 truth, to 9-11 truth Woodstocks and things like that. Uh, and, and your novel postulates a situation a little bit like that, which to me is a really fascinating sort of uh, what if. Well, you know, I, I'm being kind of cheeky, Kevin, because um, what if my novel could be that? <laughs> what if it, what if it can be the the, the 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 Trojan horse that gets into the mainstream? Because I really I really had to question myself. I mean, I've wanted to write a novel since I was seven years old. It took me my lifetime to figure out how to do it because I was too rational. I was too like, well, I'm not going to do it until I understand how to do it. And I didn't let the intuitive part do what it needed to do. So here I am. I'm finally able to write a novel. And what I'm going to I'm going to drag it down with 9/11 stuff. I'm going to alienate my readers who are going to call me a conspiracy theorist and on and on. And then I said, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to write the novel that's truest to you and it's going to find its legs or it's not. And right now, Kevin, this is just released this week. And I had to set up a review team through my publisher. So they all had their PDF a month in advance. And not one of the 28 participants has balked at the 9-11 angle or said that that ruined the book or that I, I dwelled on it too much or any of that kind of stuff. So that's a real surprise for me. And, and I'm just watching closely. I know the reviewers are going to are going to tag it, you know, come hard on it for that stuff. But I think the reader's voice might win out. Yeah, I think there's been a change overall. That is, yeah, the media is still at war with 9-11 Truth, maybe in some ways almost worse than in the past. You know, if I look back at the media I got back in 2006 when I had my 15 minutes of fame that stretched out into six months, a lot of that was relatively fair. Yeah, I mean, sure, there were attacks from Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly, but if you go back and look at those, you know, New York Times and Chicago Tribune and uh, uh, Christian Science Monitor and, and things like that, uh, writing about me, it wasn't like the way they write about 9-11 stuff now, where they're just, you know, now it's like uh, so much mainstream journalism is extremely tendentious and often, you know, kind of, you know, attempting to be withering and you know, usually these people are ignorant of what they're writing about that they seem to hate so much. Uh, it's it's very, very, very strange. But aside from from that, you know, these professional paid propagandists in the mainstream media, the ordinary folks, and then you know, the the conservative side of the media, you know, Tucker Carlson, for example, you know, uh, there there are these shows now with huge, huge audiences with people who are basically uh, truthers. You know, even you know Tucker Carlson, for example, is, seems to have come around and has been made, you know he's made some noises about Building Seven and let us know that he no longer uh, thinks that we're crazy. So so it's, I think things have, have changed. And in, in maybe, you know, those those paid propagandists are like the last hangers on of the anti 9-11 uh, movement. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I really do think so. I hope so. And, you know, if you told me before COVID that I would be uh, I would be interested in anything Tucker had to say, <laughs> uh, I would have said, oh, no, no, he's that Fox News guy. And we all know that Fox News is right wing and we know that blah, blah, blah. And everything flipped. Now people are calling me right wing. And I'm like, well, it obviously is meaningless. So everything's flipped. And now I listen to anybody who's got something to say, uh, if they're going to speak truth. And Tucker showed a lot of courage. So, I mean, you know, this he'll still say say things I don't, I don't agree with. Uh, there are comedians I like who are, they'll drop things into their routines that 
are picking on people. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about uh, Dave Chappelle and that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm just talking about people who will make a point of dropping their own political stuff into their, their, you know, into their news uh, coverage. Actually, it's what I'm getting at. And I can just filter that out because um, it is all changing and all shifting. And I just want to hear, I want to hear what the dialogue is. You know, I said to someone around COVID at a certain point, I said, look, I don't want you to agree with me or disagree with me. I just want you to know me. Are you interested in knowing me? Okay, well, then here's what I think. And I'm interested in knowing you. So please tell me what you think. And then we don't have to debate it. I just want to know you. And so now we're at a point where I'm able to know someone like Tucker. I'm able to know people that I wouldn't have known before. And Kevin, for me, this is spirit. This is spirit working and connecting people and bringing everything in into synergy. If we're willing to, uh, you know, to to just open up, just to slow down, to to well, I talk a lot about dehypnosis in the book, and you know that comes from Four Arrows influence. But the indigenous really do understand trance-based learning, and they use it to go into their own subconscious and and you know actualize what they want to do. And we don't know that that's going on, and we are constantly bombarded, put into a fear state, which puts us into a trance, which allows them to put information into us uh, that really is programming. And a lot of people don't understand, but in the early years of a child's life, up until the age of seven, you're in a, in a, a heavy to a light trance, and that's also that the child can be programmed for survival. But we outgrow that, but the biggest mechanism around that stuff in childhood is fear. And so that works the same way on us after events like 9-11, and they, you know, we're in a state of fear and then they tell us what they, they want to know, uh, want us to know or want us to think. You know, like Atan says, <laughs> I saw the towers fall and I don't believe a word. You, you know, you, you, saw, you saw the towers fall and you believe what you heard. And that's a choice that everyone has to make. My experience was very different from Atan's. I, I went through a very slow rejection of the story. I had a gut feeling originally, especially when I saw the 19 photos of the hijackers. Like, well, that was a short investigation. Uh, but it took me a couple of years to, you know, to come around to it psychologically. But Atan, because he had this old indigenous spirit in him, he immediately associated it with colonialism and said, if there's money to be made, innocents will be killed. And he didn't believe. Right. So that that's that's where he was at. Yeah, well, I, you know, I knew a bunch of, you know, so the working class people, uh, some some uh, African-Americans, uh, you know, folks like that seem to pick up on 9-11 faster than I did. I, my uh, this mechanic friend of mine, <laughs> he got it right away uh, just based on the way physical objects act <laughs> in space time. Looking at the towers come down. Uh, but, you know, but speaking of, of the, the importance of, of fear, uh I, there's that great passage which I actually uh, stole from you and, and uh, cut and pasted into the radio uh, page today. People can find the listing for today's show by going to truthjihad.com and you can click on the radio show link and find today's show. The uh, passage that I uh, I stole from your book uh, is goes like, like like this. Okay, they're going to try to uh, make everybody pledge to defund the federal government. Well, why not? Because the cowards are terrified of the IRS kicking in their door or the FBI. You haven't seen what goes on now. They won't do it. We have to make them fearless. How do you do that? Wake them up to spirit. That's a, a good, good passage. Now, it's not like it's, it's, it's not the most poetic passage in the book by any means, but it kind of cuts right to the issue, doesn't it? 
Yeah, I think I think spirit is the antithesis of of fear, and um, uh, you know I don't I'm not one of these sort of touchy feely new agey kind of people as you as you know because I came from a very academic background as my first book shows I I really wanted to rationally come to the idea that we're we're living in a pantheistic reality, but uh, and I did that but that's that's theory that's not practice and my life my practice in that time has been has been unique in a sense kevin because i'm not really a joiner you know i don't go and join yoga groups or join circles and 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 interact with a lot of people that way which is in some sense to my detriment because remember jesus said that whenever whenever two or more of you are gathered in my name or or say in the name of spirit there shall i be and and i re- i learned recently that that vibrations actually uh, they increase uh, exponentially when they accumulate, and so when spirit gets together more than one person, the effect is accumulative and exponential. And we've always felt this, you know, at a rock concert when you have that uh, elevation of everybody in the same moment, caught up in the same moment. You really feel the, the heightened energy and the, the synchronous vibration. But as an individual who's often on his own. I have to find that synchronous vibration with myself, like with that part of my inner spirit. And when I know that I'm doing it, life starts to tell me things or show me things, or you just get into a flow, get into some kind of a groove that that, that feels like, oh, this is how life is supposed to be lived. But it requires a lot of detaching from the ego voice that's always going on in the head. You know, I talk a lot about, you know, the, the ego versus the spirit at the end of the novel and how you can discern between the two. And, you know, when you're talking to your ego, it's like a child, like the ego is always negative. It's always whiny. It always thinks it's not enough. It's there's some sort of scarcity programming going on. And as your consciousness, you just want it to settle down and be quiet and stop bothering you. And I think it's the same with spirit. Sometimes spirit is talking to our consciousness and it's like, you're acting like a child (laughs) and you really just need to submit. And when I wrote that, of course, I thought about you and and the meaning of Islam and the notion that Islam is submission. And so there are things in all the religions that I resonate with that that I think are beautiful truths. And that's one of them from Islam, for sure. But it's such an antithesis to what we think about in the West. No, individuality, individualism, you know, make your mark, uh, stake your ground. uh, That's not about submitting. No, we don't submit. Oh, you know, that's that's, you know, we're lost there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. I, I, I guess why you know, Islam works for me when none of the sort of Western Christianities that I encountered did. And and even, you know, Zen meditation, you know, doing that individually was great and learning how to meditate was great. But ultimately, Islam became the you know the way that I had to follow it was because people, uh, you know, they, it's it's done collectively as you know, it, it really does infuse the the group right to have people meeting at the mosque on fridays and packing the mosque and all turning in in the same direction and submitting their egos uh you know to letting go of their egos and you know surrendering to spirit all at once at the same time and i i think in what there's one passage of your book that i thought was a little bit unfair to islam where you have uh, uh, Atan is in the the Sufi center in India, 
and he, as he leaves, some Muslim kind of collars him and says, oh, you shouldn't hang out with those Sufis. They all smoke heat. And they, they aren't doing the prayers properly, and they're not going to go to Mecca. They're not doing the five pillars and so, such and such. But, and that guy's kind of a bonehead who is missing the spirit. Um, but I, you know, I, mean, I don't think that's a, a fair description of how Islam actually works for its uh, parents, although um, certainly there may be a few like that. I, I'm glad to hear that, that that's your, you know, that it, that's not the way most people think. Um, that was an actual experience of mine. Uh, I, I was I was accosted a couple of times by people who said that I shouldn't be I shouldn't be commiserating with the, you know, the wild Sufis. They weren't they weren't true Muslims. Uh, and it's funny, you know, I posted my documentary about that that time with the Sufis on YouTube years ago. And every once in a while I drop back in and there's this raging debate. That's been going on for years about how these aren't real Muslims. These people are this or shirk or whatever. They're that. And and every once in a while, someone will drop in and say, oh, what a beautiful documentary. I love the music or this, you know, this sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I do understand that uh, there are these misrepresentations. I hope. Well, actually, you've brought it to my attention that that perhaps stands in unfairly as the only representation of Islam outside of Sufism in the novel. And that's probably imbalanced, and I shouldn't have I shouldn't have left it that way. But that's oh, what well, happens I, when you draw when you draw on your own experience, eh? Well, yeah, yeah, but it's that's an authentic experience of yours, and and it's I'm sure it's quite a real thing where you were in India because those particular Sufis are pretty far out characters, right? They they're all you know they're smoking hash, they're not you know I guess they're not you know doing the prayers at normal times, you know they're kind of. Uh, you know, they're drunken Sufis, I guess you would call them, yeah. as opposed to the sober Sufis. But uh, and so then there's also in that part of the world, in the Indian subcontinent, there's like the Diobandi movement and these other kinds of uh, kind of rigorous uh, movements you know, aimed at sort of reviving you know, Islam. Uh, and so there is a clash there between those two approaches. And so you're what you're describing is very real and you have every right to describe it. Uh, but but it's All not right. like it looks differently from here in Morocco, because here in Morocco, Sufism is very uh, establishment. You know, it's very uh, mainstream. Okay. And that's that has good and bad sides, I suppose. Personally, I, I find it mostly good. Uh, the you know, Al-Qaf ministry, which runs the religious affairs, as happens in most Muslim countries, there's an Al-Qaf ministry. Well, here it's run by a guy who's and so it's it's a it's mainstream Islam here. And actually, most Sufism, Rafiq, is is not like you, you know you you were sampling kind of the the wildest fringes of Sufism. Oh yes, but yeah, yeah, most, I, most, I, <laughs> most Sufis, most Sufis actually uh, uphold the five pillars of Islam. Okay, all right. Well, you know um, what appeals to me when I asked them about the when the call to prayer came on, they would all cover their heads uh, at least. And I asked them why they didn't go to the mosques because in Nizamuddin there are you know there are a number of dargas and a number of mosques, and they said that we're always praying. So their idea was that their life was lived in some kind of a consciousness that was always prayerful. And I really liked that idea. And the other thing I liked about the wild Sufis the most was that if you took away the Islamic veneer, it was indigenous spiritual practice. 
it was all based on chanting, drumming, rhythm, as you say, the collective of people all together, which is, I think, the most beautiful thing that, that we can get out of those kinds of tribal uh, ceremonies. And, you know, often people say, oh, Sufism is, you know, part of Islam, and they don't understand that it predated Islam, and that it comes from indigenous roots, the same way that Jesus was part of a desert cult, the Essenes, and that, for me, again, is closer to an indigenous way of perceiving the world. He had a much more holistic, inclusive way uh, of understanding the cosmos, Jesus did, than, you know, the, his Jewish brethren. So that's what attracted attracted me to the Sufis the most. Sorry about this uh, chainsaw noise in the background, but that's Mexico. <laughs> yeah, well, we have an authentic uh, Mexican on the street interview going on here. The only way we can make it more authentic would be uh, hablar en español. That I don't think I can keep that up for uh, the full 20 minutes we have left. <laughs> so then, no. I, I yeah. will say though, I will say though, Kevin, I miss the call to prayer. I do miss hearing the minarets. Uh, I love that, you know. Even if I'm not going to go to the prayer, I, I I love that in the in the atmosphere, that mystical, uh, that you know, that we talked yeah, about I, at the beginning. I, I like that too. Yeah, it's it's part of the whole thing. But I also, I I think the distinction though between you know indigenous uh, spirituality and Islam. Is is I don't, I don't see that as a very real distinction in that like uh, Prophet Muhammad peace upon him uh, was you know indigenous to the place where he lived and so were all the prophets and all prophets have always been indigenous to all places where they lived and then sure of course. Their, their teachings got spread all over the world and uh, but uh, yeah here in Morocco where Islam came in through a combination of kind of conquest and then uh, cultural confusion the Chanting Sufi chanting of Quranic and Quran related uh, passages. I saw that as a very organic development from the actual Quran itself, which is this extraordinary language which made itself felt through this power to transport the hearer into an altered state of consciousness. And then later it was written in such beautiful calligraphic ways to transport you to that higher state of consciousness. Uh, simply by looking at the beauty of what you're reading. And so that, uh, that kind of uh, higher consciousness, getting flashes of the Alam al-Raib or the other world, and so on, that's part of what these Sufis that you were with do, is actually part of the whole religion of Islam. And it's just been taken in all sorts of different directions by different people. And it's unfortunate that they quarrel with each other and say, well, my, my way of doing this is better than yours. And well, maybe sometimes it is, but uh, maybe people are spending too much time quarreling about it. And maybe they should just kind of relax and, and maybe learn from each other a little bit, too. Yeah, no, I heard some, some gorgeous uh, Quranic uh, singing in Indonesia uh, back in the day. And, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I recognize that is as a trance, as a, as a trance based, uh, practice that, that, you know, creates the kind of experience we're talking about. When I talk about the difference between indigenous religion and say Islam or Christianity, uh, the, the distinction I'm really only making is that for me, indigenous religion was, well, for one thing, it wasn't a religion. They didn't really understand things in those terms. But it was never institutionalized. And there's something that happens for me in religions when they are institutionalized. And, and so that's what, for me, is pure about the Sufis that I met, except <laughs> the, 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 the element of their, you know, the fact that they, some of them wouldn't even 
be able to practice the religion because they didn't know Islam. You know, there was a boy off the street, an orphan from Bangladesh that we took in while I was there on the Baba, uh, you know, cleaned him up and eventually started to teach him Islam so that he could pray properly and participate. But everybody spoke Urdu uh, and Hindi, and uh, but Arabic was this this other element that prohibited some people from participating. So that's what I mean about the institutionalization. That's the only real distinction I'm making. But all those things are carried through from the indigenous to the practices that, that serve us today. When you were talking about the difference between the cathedrals that are empty and, and the mosques that are full, for me, that's a cultural evolution. You know, the, the Islamic cultures haven't changed as much over the past number of years as the Western cultures have. The Western have become, frankly, more material and their spirit gathering places are empty as a result. And so I really understand your attraction to the Muslim culture and to a culture that is still palpably spiritual. Uh, it's a beautiful thing when you're there. And I'm going to come visit you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You you were absolutely invited to uh, come visit us uh, here in Sadia, Morocco. And, and we do have probably the best English language library in not only in Sadia, but possibly in, in eastern Morocco. I haven't been to any others yet, so I don't know what the competition is like. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right about institutionalization, which I, I see that as a, just a general problem, that whenever something good comes along, then you know people want to keep it going and you know some a, a good teaching comes into the world, and then people want to pass that teaching to others, and so they create institutions to do that. And before long, the institution ends up being more interested in its own survival and in the power and wealth that can be accrued to the people who are running the institution than in the actual original mission uh, in the yeah. first place. And, yeah. and so that, that, I think, probably it hits religions more than anything, but it's, it's a problem that all institutions have. Uh, and one of the good things about Islam is it is somewhat less institutionalized. It's, I think that you know, Christianity has this notion of the church, and there's a difference between a church and a state, the church meaning the religious bureaucracy, the institution. And in Islam, as Bernard Lewis, the anti-Islam orientalist, correctly points out, there is no church, uh, and not really a state either, or there shouldn't be. That is, uh, there's simply in, in, in Islam, you follow the best scholars that you can find. Like you have a question about something, you just, okay, well, who knows the answer to this question? You go and ask some somebody who has more knowledge than you do, and they give you their answer. And if you're not satisfied with it, you go and ask somebody else, and you keep asking until you're satisfied. So there's no institution where, you know, you go to the priest who says this and then he you appeal to the bishop and then finally the pope is infallible. And, you know, they're all they've all got one Vatican bank account. and It's one big corporation. There's no such corporation, at least in Sunni Islam. And even in Shia Islam, it's a lot more. It's a lot less institutionalized than, say, Christianity. So that's that's another another good thing about Islam. Although I guess if you know if you want to get totally non-institutionalized, you probably do have to go to places like you know the Inuit or wherever else you can find uh, those people. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Well, here's my question then: Do you think that Islam is more conducive to a pantheistic or holistic experience of spirit than than Christianity? Of course, you know Christianity has the Trinity, the idea that the Holy Spirit resides in us potentially, although there seem to be a lot of barriers set up to accessing that. Uh, but then I hear in Islam the idea that the prophet said that, you know, Allah is as close as your ear, whispering in your ear. So Jugular, jugular vein, actually. Uh-huh. So, so do you think that Islam is more conducive to a holistic idea of God or Allah? Well, 
I think it I think it may be, although not so much uh, directly, but I, I think I think that the in, in Christianity, some of the overemphasis on doctrine and in particular in doctrine that, you know, I, I just I'm sorry to say this, uh, my Christian friends, but it's just not rational. The, it's, it doesn't doesn't work rationally. But, uh, right. I won't get into the details. The basic central notion of Christianity regarding the crucifixion and so on and so forth, uh, to me, it's it. I mean, it has a powerful emotional appeal, but it is rationally completely incoherent. And I think, and, and then all of these dogmas have sprung up around this. And so there's a huge emphasis on dogma, orthodox, uh, right? Getting the dogma right, whereas right. in Islam and most other religions as well, actually, there's more of an emphasis on orthopraxy or just uh, you know performing the rituals right, doing the actions right, or you know doing the right thing. Uh-huh. And so I think that actually does lend itself a little bit more to. Uh, appreciating uh, direct spiritual reality rather than going to the authorities to hear their take on dogma. Uh, right. but, but in terms of indigenous, or rather imminence versus transcendence, which is kind of what you're talking about, uh, that you're you're advocating kind of a radically imminent position and arguing yeah. against uh, transcendence. And in Islam, that's been a, a there's a whole conversation about it historically, and you know the people who don't like certain Sufis like Ibn al-Arabi uh, accuse Ibn al-Arabi of being a pantheist because of the way he uh, dealt with this question of imminence versus transcendence. I see him as going too far towards imminence or pantheism, uh, but then his defenders would, of course, make the opposite argument. But anyway, there is that, that whole conversation. Right. And, but I think in, in Islam, ultimately, that question, rather than resolving it in favor of imminence, uh, as you do, the Islamic position would be more to almost say it's like a Zen koan that, you know, to say the dog has the Buddha nature uh, or doesn't have the Buddha nature. Either way, uh, it's an insult to the Buddha nature. And likewise, <laughs> you know, saying God is totally imminent or God is totally transcendent. Either way, that is limiting God and God ultimately, Allahu Akbar, God, God is greater than any possible conception that we can have of God. So ultimately, the experience of God is what counts. And that's what we get from our orthopraxy, doing the right thing, going and praying and actually giving up and surrendering our egos to our spirits and doing that rigorously. That's what we should be doing rather than doctrine and dogma. Yeah, because in the end, it's both and. God is not one or the other. It's both and. We have both the transcendent and the imminent experience of God. So, but listening to you speak, I, I do agree that the idea of Jesus as a savior, as a mediator between you and God is much more operative in Christianity and in Western culture than is the idea that the Holy Spirit is our birthright. You know, if, if I were to renovate Christianity in any way, that's where I think it could be helpful is to understand that the Holy Spirit is our birthright, that we aren't just material beings, we're spiritual, we're both and, right? Yes, and I think that's probably what Jesus was teaching. I mean, my assumption on, you know, and all, I mean, obviously, the, if we're, we're not going to get into debate, debates about the historical Jesus, because there isn't really much of a historical Jesus. But the Jesus that we have from the traditions that we have seems to be teaching people uh, the ways of the spirit. You know, he's a, he's a healer and is healing people and presumably trying to help people reach the level that he's at uh, where uh, miracles and healing are, uh, are very real possibilities. 
And, and so rather than sort of putting Jesus on a pedestal and then saying, oh, well, he died for my sins so I can sin and then go to church on Sunday and get absolved, the sort of thing that a lot of people do with institutionalized religion, that's probably not what Christianity really should be about. It should be about people uh, taking those teachings from uh, Jesus' teachings and teachings of the other prophets, he's upon all of them, and then reaching, trying to get to that higher state that Jesus was teaching them to get to. And I think if, if people start doing that, I mean, I, I got some hints of that going on with the followers of Stephen Gaskin, that hippie guru who actually learned from the Sufis, and took a whole bunch of people in the school bus from San Francisco to Tennessee, actually a whole fleet of school buses, and they bought a farm, and I guess they're all living, still living happily ever after, their descendants are. And, okay. Yeah, and he, he was he was really uh, I believe he he had some things to say about Jesus as a spiritual teacher, and then he was also spreading that consciousness uh, to the other people you know in his world. And and to me, that's you know, spreading that reality of spiritual perception would be the way that Christianity would rejuvenate itself. But I don't really see a whole lot of that happening, except maybe you know the Amish seem to be doing fairly well. But they're doing uh, maybe some of the Quakers too. Yeah, no, they're doing something right. Yeah, yeah. I'm reminded okay. of the conversation that Atan has with uh, Gunther when they're in India there, and he says, uh, well, what was it exactly now? Well, it was just the idea that, um, uh, oh, sorry, the noise is distracting me here. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it for now. Yeah, boy, it's doing radio interviews from the the Mexican street. That's uh, that's pretty ambitious. I, I I wouldn't mind trying that myself sometime. Maybe I should come visit you. It's the open air palapa. That's the deal. Cool. Well, at least they must have halfway decent Wi-Fi. Uh, they do. Oh no, I remember what I was going to say. Yeah, so they're talking about the, the 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 sadhus who can materialize things out of thin air, and you know. Guntra says it's a good trick, I suppose, and maybe useful if it can save your life. But, but what are those kind of miracles? What do they amount to otherwise? And I think, you know, all these kinds of ideas about what Jesus means or meant to attend. He talks to his mother about, you know, how come only Jesus can do miracles? And the mother, they have that sort of discussion. And, and then, of course, there's the miracle of, of his near death at a month old early on, on in the book. And and so these ideas of miracles come up over and over again. But but in the end, you know, that whether you can dodge a bullet or, or whatever you can do, none of that seems all that important in his understanding of what it was for him to be a spiritual person. So I was playing around with uh, with that stuff as well. Um, I don't I don't know if you caught it, but as they pass Corpus Christi, when he's hitchhiking up out of Mexico, passing Corpus Christi, the little girl wakes up and says that a tan smells like fish. <laughs> So there's not there's a few you know there's a few echoes of Jesus of Atan as a as a messiah figure you know in the Messianic, novel yeah, 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 yeah that I'm that I'm playing with there yeah yeah it's, it, I I totally got that right and and so at the end of the novel we do have hope that his revolution will continue and. That's uh, uh, you know, that, that that's pretty cool. And yeah, I mean, we're you know, to the extent that he sort of stands for that impulse to you know to do the right thing and you know and kind of you know get get the world back on the right track after the horrors of nine eleven and yeah, some people yeah. some some people who were hooked into the revolutionary story and is the revolution going to come about that you know he's been waiting in this safe house in Washington D.C. and you know he's there to to be part of something big and 
And when the novel ended, people were like, oh, there's going to be a sequel. We're going to find out what that was all about and what happened. And, and you know, is he really going to save the world sort of thing? And, you know, Jesus didn't start a religion. Jesus wasn't on the front lines of any of that stuff that came afterwards. And that wasn't his purpose. And Atan's story is a personal story, finally. It's not, it's not the story that the world wants him to play out. At the end of the novel, it ends on a note that's about his journey and not about that other story. And I thought that was truer to the fact that he never really set out to become what he became. And I don't think anybody ever does who, who reaches that kind of stature. Right. So he, he himself, we, we don't really know wh what he's going to do at the end of the novel, but it becomes clear that he has sparked a pretty substantial movement that might actually uh, pose a pretty major problem for the authorities or maybe even, uh, you know, radically sort of overthrow the uh, powers that shouldn't be. Uh, so there's that optimistic note as well. And even though he's not like directly exactly leading it or anything like that, he's just he's just heading back north at the end of the book. Uh, we still yeah. have hope that that the, the things that he sparked are going to possibly uh, do great things. Yeah, and that's why he feels that he can finally go home. Like he feels like he did something. It wasn't what he set out to do when he first went to New York. He set out to become a famous, you know, singer. But what he ended up doing, he goes home on a much higher note, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a nice uh, open-ended. Uh, optimistic ending, uh, you know, not a not a sappy Hollywood happy ending, not a uh, tragic cathartic ending, uh, but a nice uh, a nice open ended ending. I like it. Thank you. And I like the and, book. And, I know, enjoyed reading it. Thanks, Kevin. And after Hollywood makes a movie of the book and a good movie, they'll then make a really bad sequel. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah, they probably will. Actually, that's the, that's the way of the world. Um, but they'll have to send you royalties for the bad sequel too. Either way. You know, I had to pay royalties for every song I quote in the book. Seriously? Yeah, it cost me 500 bucks per song. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. That's and 200 a... of that went to the mediating company, and the other actually went to the person who deserved to get the royalties. So. <clears throat> yeah. So, well, I was. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I, I'm sure I, yeah. I we better not mention the names the of those songs here on the show then. No, no. <laughs> It, it wouldn't yeah. matter. It's all, all of them are like that now. It's just the way it is. But it just shows, you know, that whatever we're doing, whatever projects we're doing, we're still in this material corporate capital world. You know, we're, we're walking in this world uh, and we have to try to find our way to balance it as best we can with spirit. And so, you know, what you're doing here, this is this is part of that, Kevin. And I really, really appreciate uh, talking to you. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank, thank you so much, uh, Rafiq. I love what you're doing too. And, and again, I really did in, enjoy this uh, what 350 some or whatever page, 300 plus page uh, novel, Atan the Revolutionary. Uh, it's very much on my 9/11 uh, fiction and poetry bookshelf here in Saidia, Morocco. Uh, we just. It's the latest acquisition in, in, uh, in what's quite a collection. So, hey, uh, looking awesome. forward to having you come here and check it out someday. Thanks, so. Kevin. Okay, take care, Ruffy. Love you. You too. Bye-bye. That's uh, Robert Sean Lewis, a.k.a. Ruffy, talking about Atan, Atan, the revolutionary, and Kevin Barrett. Yeah, yeah. Kevin Barrett. Kevin Barrett. Kevin Barrett. Kevin Barrett.